The retirement and IRA show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Solnier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Hello and welcome to the Retirement and IRA show, EDU edition this time. You probably knew that when you clicked on it since it's titled an EDU show. This is, uh, let's see, the second to the last EDU show for 2023. We've got one more after this before we then roll into 2024, 2023, coming to an end. Hopefully your year has been more positive than negative. A little sad when I use that as a metric. I just wanted to be a little more positive than negative, but hopefully yours was way more positive than negative, so... I've got uh, Jim joining me today. He's uh, bringing us a a listener email as we continue our dialogue series, which we do a few shows every quarter where we elicit uh, feedback directly from listeners about how they're approaching their retirement and maybe what they are taking away from from our approach to retirement, other things they're probably learning from other places, other advisors, podcasts, books, whatever research that they've done, maybe their own ideas and mixing them all together and and using all of that to uh, proceed through their own retirements or uh, retirement planning. And and, uh, Jim said he's got uh, yet another astute listener's Email that, we have uh, plenty of astute listeners' emails. We will uh, dig into today. So thanks for joining me, Jim. No problem. But we have two we're going to get to today that came in um, since we announced that we were going to do the um, dialogue series again. So I'm going to mm-hmm. get those done today, and then next week there's some from our original dialogue series that I had said we will get to, and we will uh, next week with a couple of the emails. But we got a lot. The first time we did this, we got many, many, many more uh, email dialogue uh, participants, I shall say, than this time. So we'll see if this dialogue concept dies on the vine. And if it does, if nobody gives us anything to dialogue on, then obviously this little series part will, will end. But I have a feeling if we can ever make it live, if you can figure out how to do that, where uh, once a quarter we dedicate a couple of weeks to always being on the podcast at a certain time and allow people to contact us live. 
it might uh, resonate better. I don't know. But we did get two that I wanted to address. Um, The first one, it's not necessarily dialogue per se, but it is a mixture of what he's doing and a question to us. So this will be the shorter of the two that I want to get to. So they begin, uh, I do have to to smile uh, at the beginning here, folks. Um, And for those who don't know what the dialogue series is, it's what, Chris, I think you pretty much explained it. But we just want to hear from you on what you're doing for your own retirement. Uh, Last week, we talked a little bit about inflation adjustments. Today, we're going to talk a little bit more about general retirement planning, not necessarily inflation. They begin at high gym, but they spell gym, G-Y-M. And then they put at G-Y-M and then they smiled, a little smiley, and uh, said, we are a long-time listener. Yeah, that's a long-time that's listener a long-time reference listener. there. Uh, for those who don't know the story, but I don't even know what company I was on the phone with, with a client. This is back years ago when I used to meet with clients directly. And I, I can only think it was an insurance company because I used to always do annuity calls or insurance calls with with clients who had these policies or products and didn't know what they had. I certainly didn't know because I didn't put them in it. So the best way to do it is to call the insurance company and chat with the phone rep about what the people have. And something needed to be emailed to me. I know it was a Southerner. I'm not making fun of Southerners at all. They're very smart and bright people. But this person had a very, very thick Southern accent, and they needed to send me something. And I said, well, you can email it to jim at jimhelps.com. And this all came about because we got a question once, why does Jim, me, spell jimhelps.com when he used to give his email address. Now Chris pretty much gives my email address. But I used to always say, you can email me at jim at jimhelps.com. That's J-I-M at J-I-M-H-E-L-P-S dot com. Jim at jimhelps.com. Why don't you take over the story, Chris, on why I started spelling it out? Well, the phone rep, this must mean Jim has to cough, but uh, so the phone rep uh, repeated back to him his email address and and spelled it, G-Y-M at G-Y-M helps dot com. Correct, except you missed one crucial element. I can't do an accent. <laughs> it's not so much the southern accent. The I asked him, it was a male, to please repeat to me the email address and spell it out. He said that'll be G-M at G-Y-M at G-Y-M. Helps, but he spelled helps, folks, H-E-A-L-P-S dot com. Jim at jimhelps.com. So he spelled helps wrong as well. And that's why I started spelling helps out, just in case people thought there was an A in helps. Now, I'm not an English language major, nor an expert in the English language, so I'm not poking fun. It just helped explain to someone one day, why does Jim spell it out? But this had to have been over 10 years ago. So this is a longtime listener, if they remember that whole tirade story. Okay, state 
hint. Uh, we've had this same hint many, many times. I am from the only state to host the Summer and Winter Olympics. Chris, you should mm. know the answer to this. California. California. Okay. Here's the thing. Uh, he began first pointing out something about IRAs. I just want to, I'm not going to get into it, but listener, we did talk about what you pointed out on the show in the past when we did review Secure, and I can all but guarantee you many, many times next year we'll be mentioning it as well. So I'm not skipping over it on purpose. We've just talked about the IRA point. So here he says, my dialogue discussions. Before I bought my long-term care policy, I was talking with another insurance agent that was trying to refer me to an associate of his for financial planning. Of course, he tossed out the safe withdrawal rate in our conversation. And I mentioned to him your approach to the fund number and minimum dignity floor. And I told him that I thought it was a smarter approach. In our conversation, he actually saw the value of your approach, at least to the minimum dignity floor. But he stated that one could actually use the safe withdrawal rate on the fun number once you knew it. I did my retirement planning and my plan has had significant changes in my funding and spending. So a safe withdrawal rate would not work for me. But I have thought of this conversation, and I do think it could be a reasonable approach for those whose fund spending is perhaps a little bit more modest or maybe evenly distributed throughout their retirement. This is just a thought, but what do you think? I've been enjoying the podcast for a few years, more than a few. Thanks for all the rabbit holes you go down. So here's my initial thoughts on it. I came up with the concept of the fun number, not to limit someone's spending on fun every year, especially in the go-go phase, but to encourage people to spend heavily in the go-go phase. And I always thought, rather than looking at one solid portfolio where you can't see through it, you have no clarity, and you don't know what those dollars are meant for, you're just told you can't spend more than whatever the advisors or your personal safe withdrawal rate is. Let's just use 4% as the example, but it's all over the place. I've seen higher than 4, significantly lower than 4. But in a traditional approach to retirement, you can't see into your portfolio. You have no idea with all that money in there how much could truly be spent during your go-go phase and it's not going to affect you later in life. Instead, you're told to just limit all spending, fun and non-discretionary to no more than X percent of your portfolio. That's always rubbed me the wrong way. So, why would you figure out the fun number, but then limit yourself to the safe withdrawal rate on it? Now, the cynic in me says the advisor, who most likely 
has no way of managing a retirement the way Chris and I does, especially if he or she is just using Monte Carlo probability-based software such as uh, Right Capital or eMoney or Money Guide, the three big retirement planning programs in our industry. You're all but guaranteed to get a safe withdrawal rate Monte Carlo-based probability statistic approach to your retirement planning. How could that advisor manage your money unless they had you doing something like that? So they saw the value of protecting the minimum dignity floor. I'm glad on that. That's a non-negotiable in my retirement planning approach. Minimum dignity floor, food, utilities, transportation, housing, and health care comes first and should be covered 100% in our oh-so-humble opinion with lifetime guaranteed secure income. Again, all to make you feel comfortable spending your money on fun. So I'm glad the advisor acknowledged that. And maybe uh, because he was an insurance person, you were chatting. No, no, you were chatting to the, the colleague of the insurance person. So I'm glad he at least saw value in the MDF. To limit, though, once you have the fun number, my opinion, Chris, you chime in in a second, But to me, to limit, once you have the fund number, a safe withdrawal rate on that, as if that fund number has to last your entire life, to me, that is wrong. That's not needed. You don't have a safe withdrawal need on your fund number. It doesn't have to survive your entire life. It should be broken into the go-go, slow-go, no-go phase. And you should be encouraged to spend the majority of it in what you feel your go-go phase will be. Because your life can change at any moment. And I think what you have here is a AUM guy, most likely, or gal, who needs to manage one big portfolio not a see-through portfolio broken into four, five, six different mini portfolios. They can't do that. They're not set up for that. They're set up to have one big portfolio to use an accumulation portfolio with a 60, 40, 80, 20, 70, 30, whatever the breakdown between stocks and bonds is and limit you to a quote-unquote safe withdrawal so they can easily assess their AUM fee. That's the cynic in me talking about my industry, but I do feel strongly that's what my industry does. And I think the advisor you spoke to conceded, if we're going to protect the minimum dignity flow with lifetime guaranteed secure income, and you're going to come down to the fund number, Well, gee, it's a smaller number, but I could assess my AUM fee on it if I limit you to a safe withdrawal on the fun. But that misses the boat. I don't feel fun should be preserved. I think fun should be spent heavily during your go-go phase. Leave the older you no-go. That's the, you're going to have, you're going to spend on the go-go phase. And the slow-go phase, just not as much. The no-go phase, where my mom and dad are right now in their 80s, they don't go out and do things, folks, unless I'm home with them, and then we go out to eat. That's about it. They're not traveling around. They're not buying new cars. They're not doing all this stuff, especially my dad. He's in an assisted living nursing home. You all know that. 
Our approach is to encourage you to spend on fun, not to limit. That's my take. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts, Paul? Paul. Pete. Oh, Jesus. Chris. Mary. No. You you almost had the trifecta there. (laughs) Just out of order. Um, Move on. Yeah, I think that it, it isn't embracing our concept of the use of the fun number and our approach to using that once you have that number. Um, by using a safe withdrawal rate, you're essentially saying, I want to have regular recurring spending on this um, that doesn't really vary other than increasing for inflation. Because that's the concept of the, of, the, of the safe withdrawal rate is you're able to take out that amount of the portfolio as a starting number, but then increase it each year for inflation. So essentially uh, fixing your spending level at a certain amount and maintaining that purchasing power because you're adjusting for inflation throughout retirement. Well, saying that we want to make sure that the 95-year-old us can spend the same amount on fun as the 65-year-old us seems asinine to me. And that's you know consistent with what Jim just said. That And I, when I say it like that, I hope it sounds crazy to you too. A 95-year-old uh, isn't going to be spending on fun what a 65-year-old spends on fun. And reserving enough money, restricting the outflows early in retirement to make that happen is punishing the younger you when you could be physically able to go off and do the things that cost money, which is usually travel and more expensive hobbies. Once you rip out the significant travel and any expensive hobbies, what's left um, is not nearly as expensive. So the the 90-year-old, the 80 85 plus year old out there, the kind of the typical no-go phase we talk about is certainly we want them to have fun. But what we want to do is kind of protect a floor level of fun. And that's where we propose setting aside a chunk of your of your fun number that we, you know, try to walk people through for the no go and slow go phase, some chunk for each one of those, essentially saying if we get carried away in our go go period and blow all that money, what do we want to make sure as a baseline, basic fund that the 85 year old or the 75, 78 year old, 95 year old would be able to have and so that we wouldn't, um, so that so that they wouldn't be mad at us, the younger the younger retiree. They we don't want the older retiree to be mad at the younger one because they put them in a a position of having no fun. Or you know we're not talking about covering the basics because that was dealt with with minimum dignity floor protections already. We're just talking about the fun here. So um, for most people, that's going to take your fun number and a portion, a big old chunk of it, maybe seventy plus percent of it to go go spending. And the, the using a safe withdrawal rate is um, the opposite of that approach. So no, neither of us are big fans of that. And those of you who are, are attracted to our fund number approach would likely not be fans of using a safe withdrawal rate on, on the fund number. Was that my cue? That's it. All right, perfect. If you asked me any questions during your little tirade, I was not in no, the I recording didn't. studio. Excellent. Excellent. I did not. I just well, noticed. Welcome back. Thank you. Um, I'm doing all this from my iPad, folks. I'm recording in the office today, not from home. And um, my iPad flashed. The battery was ready to run out. It was down to 9%. Oh, no. Yeah, I was like, well, and I don't have the charge. I get the charger for my iPhone, which is some lightning thing. But my iPad is a UBSC thing or something like that. Mm. Um, so I can't charge it. So I had to go downstairs and print from my regular computer 
the next question, <laughs> the, or, or we would have been stuck. See, the paper will not The run battery out of never battery. runs out of paper. No, paper. No. Although you could run out of toner in the printer. But. I, well, when it's paper, like that, I can stay here for a thousand years, and this paper will probably still be here. Very nice. I won't, but the iPad will not make it a thousand years. Okay, the next one. I think we covered that one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, so this next one, Chris, it's going to sound familiar to you. Do you know why? Can you remember why? Think back uh, two weeks. Two weeks? That's way too long for me to think I think it think was back. two weeks. Might have been one week. Just think back. Why will this email sound familiar to you? Because we've done it before. Because <laughs> <laughs> I muffed up. We were recording uh, the Q&A show, I believe, and I started reading this email by mistake and then apologized. You'll get it because of this hint. It's not his state, but the state is the most easternmost state in America, in the United States. Oh, Alaska, which we did learn. I think that was maybe last week. Was it last week? Okay. Maybe. See, I can't remember. It was either last week or the week before. And then th- this you probably will recognize. He says, I'm your classic do-it-yourself Vanguard engineer, listener. I initially, when initially planning my retirement income plan, I researched a number of complex approaches, which doesn't surprise me, folks. He's an engineer. After much education by reading Wade Fowle, and listening to your podcast, I completely revised that plan. I have adopted your KISS, keep it super simple to avoid calling anyone stupid approach, but with my own twist. And remember, I stopped there and said, wait a minute, this is the wrong email. Does it ring uh, a bell now? That rings a bell. I remember the KISS comment. Okay. So. I like that KISS, keep it super simple. Yeah. To avoid calling people stupid, because yeah. it's, usually, it's usually best. Keep it stupid, simple. Keep it simple, stupid. <laughs> yeah. Can't even say it. See? Keep it stupid, simple. <laughs> All right. Keep it simple, stupid is the way it's supposed to be. But I like his. Keep it super simple. So, as promised, here's the rest of what this engineer guy does. The foundation of our approach My wife and I are both retired military. Our military pensions and VA disability fully cover any minimum dignity floor and even more. Let's pause there. Do you normally see that with with government pensions and military pensions? Especially for two? That covers the minimum dignity floor plus? Well, both him and his mm-hmm. wife have one. They're mm-hmm. both retired military. Yeah, that's pretty common. And it's actually those cases more than any other probably that I see unicorns where everything is covered as far as their desired spending in both the required and desired or what we call minimum dignity floor and fund spending. Uh, in, our, in our labeling, a unicorn is someone who has enough secure income. They're expected to be able to cover both with their secure income. Uh, both fun and minimum dignity floor. So, uh, yes, uh, if you were in the military for quite some time, um, have two of those. If you have both in the family, you've got some social security as well. Uh, that that's not all are not all are unicorns. So, if you're not not disparaging you by any means, you just have you probably still have healthy so, secure income. But 
I think that pairing has the greatest chance of unicorn status in our office. Okay. So he continues, folks. Obviously, he has a lot of secure income. So he continues, I retired from the military at 52, but my wife doesn't plan to join me in retirement until I am 60, and I am currently 58. We both have survivor benefit plans, so we will get 55% of the other's pension if either of us pass away first. That combination would still cover the survivor's minimum dignity floor. So 55% of the decedents and 100% of the person living would still, of their pension, would still cover 100% of their minimum dignity floor. Mm -hmm. Then if we add in Social Security, we are even good for our foundation. So he's not even counting, folks, Social Security. He's just looking at his military pensions. Mm -hmm. So God bless the service they did, and they're being well paid for it in retirement. But what it's highlighting is the value, folks, of lifetime secure income. Even at his age now, 58, and when he retired at 52, he probably realized the value of lifetime guaranteed secure income. He probably realized the value, maybe not so much in his 20s when he might have joined the military, but I guarantee you by his 40s, he was starting to realize, holy smokes, I got a pretty good deal here. Lifetime guaranteed income, at least to cover your minimum dignity floor forever, is such an emotional uplift for you. I say all the time on this podcast, when you retire and that steady paycheck stops, it's going to freak you out. I don't care how much of a Vanguard VG you are, a DIY VGer. I don't care how many numbers you crunched, how many Excel spreadsheets you have. It's still going to freak you out and you're going to be loathe to spend your money. Because if you don't have lifetime income and you're living from savings, you're not going to want to spend it for two reasons. In the back of your mind, you're always going to be worried you're going to need more of it later. But you also spent your entire career, 20, 30, 40 years, however long it was, growing it. It's, it's, you're low. It's, it's against your, your norms to start spending it. And you're not going to want to. We see this constantly. I've seen it constantly. It's why I came up with my approach. But I always thought if people knew that your food, utilities, transportation, housing, and healthcare expenses were covered for life with income that won't end, even if you ran out of money, or even if you were totally incapable of managing your money, this income just continues, it might make you feel a little more comfortable spending your own money on other totally discretionary items, totally frivolous, 
fun that you want to do. I've always felt that way. That's why I gave it the analogy of the bottomless cup of coffee. If you go to one cafe for breakfast and you don't get the bottomless cup of coffee, you're just given a set amount of coffee, you know you've got to make that coffee last your entire meal. Now, granted, I get it, folks. You can buy more, but let's look beyond that. You've got to kind of time the sipping and slurping and gulping of that coffee to get you through your breakfast, whatever that is, whether it's a big breakfast or a small breakfast. But if you were at a cafe that had that bottomless cup of coffee, what the hell do you care? I'm going to drink this because I know it's going to get refilled. And if you knew your income never ended, you would feel more inclined to spend money. It always surprises me sometimes when people say, oh, he's a retiree, he lives on a fixed income. As if that's a bad thing. If you have, now granted, fixed income could some people mean it never goes up for inflation. We've talked in the past recently of approaches to inflation. But for others, fixed income means you don't have a job, you just have this income coming in. What's more secure? Seriously, folks, think about this. Social Security, a pension, or an income annuity, or your job. What can you lose? What do you have an easier chance of losing? Your job. You can lose a job at any time. That's why everybody told you during your accumulation years you have to have an emergency reserve. You could lose your job at any time. You have to have six months salary saved because it was just assumed you could find a new job paying a similar salary within six months. For better or worse, that has ingrained itself into the mindset of pre-retirees to have six months of salary reserved in case you lose your job. When we put our retirement plan together, We have a buffer or a reserve. It's an option for our clients as they come up with their fund number. But it's not because I fear they are going to lose their job. They don't have a job to lose. I don't fear them losing their secure income, Social Security, pension, and income annuity. All three of those are guaranteed. Now, yes, save your emails if you want to say Social Security could be cut, the pension could go bankrupt, the insurance company could go out of business. I get that. But Social Security, I don't feel, will be cut for existing retirees. Your pension is hopefully backed by the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, which is the U.S. government. And the insurance company, you hopefully purchased a lifetime stream of income, not from some godforsaken private equity-owned Bermuda-based insurance company, but from some highly rated, 100-plus-year-old, well-capitalized, well-funded, A++-rated insurance company. I don't think you need to worry about your secure income being cut. So that, to me... If you have that, it's better than a job. But when you had a job, nobody thinks twice about spending money. 
Why? Because, well, I got my next paycheck. I'll get another paycheck coming in and another paycheck coming in. But that paycheck could stop at any time, especially in a state like Colorado that's an at-will state. You could fire someone on Monday with no reason, just, I don't want you here anymore. Now, of course, a union might give you a little bit more protections than that. But in the private markets, just get the hell out of here. No job for you anymore. You don't have to explain why. That is less secure than true secure income. So this listener is benefiting from that. Anything you want to add? No, I don't think so. Okay. So he goes on to say, we do still have a cash buffer of two to three years, but it's for gifts and travel. So I don't care what the market is doing. And I can still travel and give gifts. Again, folks, and you can opine in, Chris, quickly, uh, in a minute. He has his minimum dignity floor covered with secure income. And they know at the death of the first spouse, even though the smaller of the two Social Securities goes away and the pension of the decedent gets cut almost in half, it's still going to give them enough to cover their minimum dignity floor. Prior to death, both pensions and Social Security gives them enough to cover minimum dignity floor and most other spending. So they have that protection. You can do that too. Don't tell me you can't. If you have enough money saved, you can buy that level of protection by not taking a lump sum pension distribution and or purchasing an income annuity. But they have that. So he wants not necessarily a emergency reserve out of the fear he may lose his income. He has a cash reserve of a couple of years so he can still make gifts. He didn't say if to people or charities, it doesn't matter. So he can still make gifts and do his fun travel. I like it. What are your thoughts, Chris? Yeah, I think you still need to have some liquidity cushion for various things that come up that you might want to do that wouldn't necessarily fit in the yearly income that you've got coming in. So you have to remember that even though you're doing projections and you're budgeting for both minimum dignity floor and fun, your reality is going to be more volatile as far as your spending from year to year. So having the freedom to do that, and if they aren't wanting to you know, if if gifting and, and some of the other things he's talking about are above and beyond what his secure income could cover anyway, then there's an obvious reason to be able to have this extra money uh, as that kind of near-term cushion to spend from. But um, even if you have that, even if you think your income is going to cover everything, unless it's like so way above anything you could imagine ever spending, and that's there's very few people that are I guess, ultra sequined unicorns or some, you know, deluxe unicorn. Um, If it's, you know, just covering it or just covering it with a small cushion, you still need to have something, uh, even if it's not for gifting, have it for, I call it splurge spending or, or spike spending that might happen in any given year. Okay. He continues. We will continue to do gradual Roth conversions even after my wife retires. Our aim is to have 500000 in our traditional IRAs. So they're going to do some conversions. He doesn't get into much on his strategy. I'm sure he crunched the numbers. He is a, a, a VG engineer. 
No problem with that, folks. But he explains why he's going down to half a million, and I like his thoughts. He says, this IRA will then become our long-term care self-funding reserve. I like holding LTC reserves inside IRAs, not Roth IRAs. Now, some people only have money in a Roth, so it's going to be from the Roth. But my point is this. You, to me, don't want to convert an LTC reserve into a Roth. Because if the LTC reserve is truly used for LTC, most of it, at least under current laws, will be able to be removed tax-free. Not all of it, because you have, is it 7.5 or 10% of AGI, uh, of medical expenses? I forget. I always get... I think it's 7.5. 7.5. They fluctuated between the two, and you're <laughs> right, because there's the, because they mixed it up on us and went back and forth on I can their, never remember which one it uh, is. Yeah. So it's a 7.5% AGI hurdle, meaning medical expenses that exceed 7.5% of their adjusted gross income uh, will be deductible to them. Medical expenses below that will not be. But if you need true LTC, that's most of those expenses are fully deductible. So it won't be hard to breach that 7.5% hurdle for the most part. So we like to assign an IRA as an LTC reserve because it makes more sense from a tax perspective. But he also says any money not used will be for an inheritance. Okay, I would prefer the inheritance to be in the Roth, so you can't have your cake and eat it too in this situation. But I think what he's simply saying is if we don't need it for LTC, we're going to leave it to the kids. And that's fine. I have no problem with that. Do you have any problems with with what he's doing there? No, makes sense. Okay, we invest these dollars in index funds. I have no problem with that at all. We are a all well almost all passive uh, firm ourselves, utilizing uh, low cost, passively managed ETF index funds as part of our portfolios. So I'm all for that. And being a Vanguard engineer, uh, I would be shocked if you said you are buying bloated, actively managed mutual funds. I would be shocked if you said that. Okay. So he wraps up with a few more. The rest of our assets will also be invested in index funds, and they are generating about 2% dividends. So we put that into our cash reserve buffer that I mentioned above. And we do this every year. If the market is up, we will sell an additional 3% of our portfolio and add that to our buffer. Because remember, folks, they're actively spending from that buffer. So you might be wondering, how do they fill it? How do they keep that buffer going? They have lifetime secure income that's covering their minimum dignity floor. And right now, while both of them are alive and the wife is still working... Their fun is also being covered with lifetime secure income. Or not lifetime in the case of the wife. She's only going to work a few more years. But with steady stream of income. But they are actively spending still with gifting and travel from their 
two-year reserve. How do they fill it? Well, they're earmarking dividends and interest, but also saying in any year that their portfolio is up, they sell 3% of it. I don't know how he came up with that percentage, but that's what he's doing. And they put that cash into their cash reserve. Remember, that reserve, he admits, is a cash buffer. I'm assuming he has it in a money market account or very short-term maybe CD ladder or some uh, online uh, bank account, high-yield bank account. He doesn't get into what the cash reserve is in. He's just saying that they're putting that money into their cash buffer. I have no problem with that. If the market is not up, we will not sell. So that's fine. I have no problem with that either. Okay, he says each, he gets a little bit confusing here, and I don't want to read it because when I do, I still get confused. But he figures a few things out on his distributions on how he does things. And he says, if you add it all up, it essentially comes to 4%. I'm definitely not following the 4% rule, but my approach seems to pass the common sense test of fully funding a long go-go phase due to our relatively early retirement and yet allow for a transition to gifting as we age out of travel. Thanks for your wonderful show. He kind of explained that when he takes the 3% that he does in any up year, plus his dividends, and then he gets into adding it together and dividing and doing some other thing that he lost me on, it's kind of a 4% withdrawal he's doing from his overall portfolio to fund this cash reserve that he's dedicated to travel and gifting. And he's essentially saying we've kind of adopted a 4% rule on this. Now, the reason I liked this email with the previous email is the previous email was addressing or the advisor was suggesting you apply a 4% rule to your fund number. And the person who sent that email in said, hey, that wouldn't work for us because our spending has changed dramatically. It's been very volatile, up, down, all over the place. And that is true. When you survive on a 4% payout or whatever your safe withdrawal rate is, you can't spend more than that in any given year. And if you wanted to spend 80000 but your 4% fund number is um, money is only 40000 you can't do it. You'd have to wait two years and do nothing fun one year to save that 40000 So the next year, that 40 years 40000 gives you the 80000 you need. It's very rigid and not really reflective of how people live. But they did say maybe that approach would work for people whose spending is more level. Well, this gentleman, he has what we would kill to have, massive secure income. That's more than covering the minimum dignity floor. It's going into some of their fun right now. And even with his withdrawal, because of that, with his withdrawals, which are averaging about 
It's adequately funding his travel now, and they anticipate gifting later when their travel begins to slow as they enter their slow go and no go. So here's a case, listeners and Chris, where maybe a quote-unquote 4% withdrawal rate to your assets does cover your fund. But it's not covering all his expenses. His minimum dignity floor are being covered with lifetime secure income. So that's why I kind of wanted to do both these questions or or thoughts, Chris. They kind of relate that there's no perfect approach. You have to be willing to give and take and be flexible like Gumby. You got to be flexible. It might work for you, but it wouldn't work for that first person who emailed us. Because they don't have massive lifetime guaranteed secure income and their fund spending is much more volatile than this gentleman's where he seems to be doing quite fine replenishing a two-year cash reserve with dividends and an occasional 3% withdrawal from a up portfolio in any given year his assets are up. What says you, Swami? Well, I do think people get locked into um, a particular approach, whether they're a consumer figuring out for themselves based on what they've researched or uh, advisors use a preferred approach. And what we see is there's a lot of variability into how you can kind of put together the the building blocks of a successful retirement plan uh, that are affected tremendously by some key variables. And one of the big variables that I think, you know, adds a lot of some, well, some complexity, I guess, is when you're retiring compared to when you turn on your secure income. And the two extremes, of course, is when you retire, your secure income is on. So you've actually got your foundation income started immediately. That happens a lot with a lot of the military pensions I see. So maybe one of, you know, one of these folks uh, uh, would fall into that category. Or if you retire late enough and your Social Security starting right away, that's a very different situation as far as the predictable nature of, of what's happening in each and every year. Uh, versus someone who has a classic delay period where they retire and then it might be 10 years before any secure income turns on. You can't handle that first 10-year period the same as the years after that or treat it the same way as someone who has pensions that turn on right away. Those are two very different situations as far as how you're going to navigate or manage that situation. So you you all kind of need to take a look at some of those key variables and 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 break your retirement up. We like to, you know, we find that there's a lot of um I think logic in addressing the delay period separate from the post delay period, because that's essentially recognizing what I just pointed out, the very different cash flow situations before and after your secure income is turned on and apply different techniques for each of those that are appropriate for you. And uh, I like that this person, um, you know, this last one that you read had devised his own plan that seems to be working quite nicely for him. And everything he said seems to be pretty reasonable. Looks like he's researched it in his particular case. It works. That particular approach isn't going to work well 
for someone who has a, a full-blown delay period where they don't have that secure income coming in and they've got to manage distributions for maybe five, seven, 10, 12, you know, years, depending on how young you're retiring compared to the, the, um, implementation of your secure income. So, uh, Take the pieces and parts of all, you know, what we talk about, what our listeners might propose, what other folks you listen to out there through maybe either reading or or other podcasts. Um, Take those pieces that make sense for your circumstances and kind of assemble it for yourself. And if you're, you know, a dedicated do-it-yourselfer, you'll have to pull those pieces together and, and deploy it. Okay, I like it. Um, one thing I do, I'm going to explain to you how we came up with the 4%. I didn't want to read it because I hate when I see a lot of numbers and there weren't too many numbers. So I reread it. I'm like, oh my God, this is easy. So I didn't want this VG engineer to think, wow, that paragraph screwed up Jim. So here's how he came up with that. He's kind of averaging a 4% withdrawal. He said, if you look at my, oh, you're going to say something, Chris? No. Oh, he says, if you look at my approach, I'm either taking out 2% a year or 5%. And what he means by that, folks, is if his portfolio is up, it's an on-off. Up portfolio, he takes out three. Now, he doesn't say, does it have to be up a half a percent and he takes out three? Or does it have to be out more than three? He does not clarify. But he says, and he makes it clear, it's an on-off, go-no type test. Portfolios up, I take out three. Portfolios negative, I take out nothing. But he always takes his interest in dividends, which averages about 2%. So he says, if you consider the market is up usually two out of every three years, I'm taking out two plus five plus five. That's 12. If I divide that by three, you essentially get 4%. So that's how he came up and said he's spending about 4% of his portfolio. Mm -hmm. Just wanted to clarify that. That didn't confuse me, listener. (laughs) I just was afraid to read it all, but it's so simple I decided to read it. One thing I want to say that he doesn't mention. He's putting a lot of money in a Roth IRA, I'm guessing, with these conversions. He doesn't say if he applies that Roth to his withdrawal as well into his cash account. If he does, I'm going to encourage him not to take it out of the Roth. I'm not saying not to put it in cash. Leave it in the Roth, but create a cash account inside the Roth, a money market account or something else. I like money in a Roth. It's protected from taxes, from growth. It's protected from bankruptcy, depending on what you, excuse me, it's protected from bankruptcy at the federal level and from creditors, uh, depending on what your state does. So it has kind of a trifecta that a regular bank account is not going to give you. So I would encourage you to, you can still do your dividend and 3% in any positive year withdrawal from your uh, index funds, but don't physically take it out of the Roth and just put it in the bank. Just, you might have to have now two cash accounts, one bank and one Roth, but I'd like the money to stay in the Roth for as long as possible, especially if your cash account ends up growing more than you thought and you decide, gee, I'm going to invest some of these dollars. Why not then just take the Roth cash money and invest that and keep it right in the Roth? That's my thoughts. Mm -hmm. Before we wrap up, agree, disagree? Yeah, I think people have this aversion to holding cash in a Roth. Um, There's no reason not to. 
So even if you want to hold it as an investment choice in cash or cash-like holdings, it's okay to keep it inside the wrapper of the Roth. Don't feel compelled to bring it out of there. It's totally fine if if you're going to have that in there for the reasons you mentioned. Yeah. And especially, again, if your cash account begins to grow, especially with all that secure income you have, you might start thinking, gee, I want to get some of this. I got too much in the cash. I'm going to put some of that back to work. Boom. It's right there in the Roth. Take it there and put that back to work. Anyways, two good questions Mm -hmm. that are kind of related. So this was the whole idea of uh, the dialogue. We've got one more dialogue, I think, coming up, right? We've got one more week Mm -hmm. and then the year's over, isn't it? Yep. One more EDU show. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep, one more. So uh, don't worry, we have questions for this EDU. They're ones that were sent in earlier. So we'll do another dialogue of older questions, and we'll let you know when the next dialogue series is going to begin, and we will uh, let you write to us with some of your dialogue thoughts at that point. Yep, great. Well, we hope everyone's enjoying uh, the holiday season, if this is the season you enjoy your holidays. Some people really enjoy Fourth of July. My wife is a big fan of 4th of July. That's her favorite holiday. So, But if this is your preferred time of the year, hope you're enjoying it. Um, like Jim mentioned, we'll be back next week with another EDU show before we close out 2023. Um, looks like we don't need any more questions for, for that particular show. But if you have questions for our Q&A show, which there will be two more of those before we close out this year, uh, send those questions directly to Jim, Jim at jimhelps.com. And I'm not going to spell it this time since we, already, we went out of our way to explain the spelling on jimhelps.com earlier. So send them his way with a subject line indicating that it's a question for the show, and we'll have him take a look at those. So thanks, everybody. Thanks, Jim. Um, we'll talk to everybody next week. You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now, you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saulnier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jimhelps.com or call 970-530-0556. The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services is offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. 